Good morning. Welcome to Missio. My name is Bernie. I'm one of the elders on staff here at Missio. And um, we have the privilege of, in the next few moments, looking at God's Word. Um, we are continuing in our series through the Psalms, Songs of the Great King. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 20. We'll be looking at that Psalm this morning, Psalm chapter 20. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one, that little rack in the pew in front of you, and you can find our text this morning on page 456, I believe. Psalm chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. This is God's Word. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Would you again bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we know that grass withers and flowers fade, but your word abides forever. And so I pray in these next uh, moments that as we look at Psalm 20, your spirit would speak to us and that we uh, would be submitted to your enduring, abiding, perfect word. Father, I pray that you would shine in people's hearts and let them see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would cause us all to rejoice in who you are and what you've done. And now, Lord, I pray that the words that my mouth speaks and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, um, like many of you over the past weeks, I got sick. And I mean, really, really sick. Um, I, there was a few days, it actually started last weekend, where I wasn't feeling well, and I just kind of powered through it. Okay, this is just one of those times. And then I woke up Tuesday morning and ate breakfast, getting ready to come here to the office for our staff meeting. And as soon as I got done eating, I was like, oh, this, isn't, this is not going to end well. So... Uh, let Levi know I wasn't going to be in, and I, I went to bed right away. And I, I don't think I woke up till like dinner time, and just woke up for a short time, and then went back to bed, 
and woke up the next morning. It was just this virus, whatever it was, just ravaged my body and beat me down. So, but on Wednesday, I was starting to feel a little better, but didn't want to infect anybody with whatever I had. Uh, it still wasn't quite right, but I was able to walk around my house. And so I made trips out to my living room and kitchen. And on one of my trips out there, um, I happened upon a time of prayer that my wife, in which my wife was leading my kids in. And I walked out just as my son Ezra, Ezra's nine-year-old, nine years old, he has Down syndrome, just as Ezra was beginning to pray. And I heard these words, God, please help daddy to feel better. Whew. That is like that the heartstrings just tug, like, whoa, melts my heart. And that was followed by, so he can make me coffee again. You see, I, I had felt so awful for several days that I couldn't even, dr- I couldn't drink or even like really think about drinking coffee. And, and you need to know this, that there are many days throughout the week where um, the, the first people up, not all the time, but the first people up in my house are Ezra and me, and we sit up before sunrise on the couch and we drink a small pot of coffee together and get ready for the day. And, you know, I know that there is tons of love and affection in his heart and concern in his heart for me at that moment, but that prayer also came out of a desire to just taste a high-octane cup of joe again for him, (laughs) right? And as we read Psalm 20, we're reading a a somewhat unique type of of literature. It's a prayer um, to God, but it's directed to the king. It's the prayer of the people to God, directed to the king. And they're praying not for themselves, but they're praying for the king as he prepares to ride out into battle. No doubt out of love and loyalty and concern for their king, but also for another perhaps more self-interested reason as well. So I'd like to spend a few minutes seeing what they prayed and, and perhaps why they may have prayed this psalm. Notice with me that they begin by asking God to intervene in the upcoming conflict and to protect and come to the aid of their king. Look at verse one with me. May the Lord answer you, King, in the day of trouble, may the, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And then they ask that God would remember fondly the faithfulness of their king as he goes out into battle, as evidenced by his many sacrifices, by his offerings to God. Look at verse 3. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. They want God to remember David fondly as he goes out into battle. And then this is followed by them asking that God would grant total success and bring about the accomplishment of David's military strategy. Look at uh, verse four. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And then finally, we hear them ask that God would grant them to the right to rejoice, to find joy, to delight in the king's triumph. Look at verse five with me. 
May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So essentially they are asking for one thing. They are, they are asking that the king's prayers for victory, the prayers that David has already offered for battle, would be answered by God. God, give our king his victory. That's what they're praying. That's what these five verses have said. And obviously these people have a strong connection to their king. They, they seem far more attached, and I know I speak for myself here, far more attached and fond of him than we are of any of our political leaders, right? And, and while we're called upon in 1 Timothy to pray for uh, kings and those in authority over us, um, you know, our, our president, Governor Cuomo, uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Mayor Walsh, and the city council, uh, while we're called to pray for th- those in authority over us, most of us, I-, I think it's fair to say, really have little to no loyalty to any of those people personally. I mean, we're just as happy when their term expires and they decide to retire and the next representative comes along and uh, they kind of follow the same, but we're just as happy that they've moved on and there's a new person. So the question is, what made these people so committed to their king's success? And again, while love and fondness for him personally might might have been a part of that, their, their loyalty, their concern came out of this. The fate of the king was the fate of his people. The fate of the king was the fate of the people. Think about it. If the king were conquered, uh, it wasn't going to go well for the people. For example, in 587, uh, Judah and Jerusalem were conquered and wiped out. What happened was the Babylonian armies came in and they brought Jerusalem to the ground. Basically, when they were done, it was a pile of stones. It looked like a garbage dump of, of concrete and stone and, and just a mess everywhere. People were murdered. Others were carried off into captivity, um, essentially as slaves, Uh, Some people remained in the land to fend for themselves. But as goes the king, so goes the people. But if the king were victorious and subdued his enemies, well then there would be peace in the land and there would be the possibility for prosperity in the land and things would be wonderful and, and they would be happy. The fate of the king is the fate of his people. So having offered their prayers for their kings out of love and loyalty and concern for him, but also out of concern for themselves, verse six, there's this turning point in the psalm where it's no longer a prayer, but instead we see this enthusiastic expression of confidence, that it, confidence in the one to whom the prayers have been offered. Look at it with me in verse six. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. 
And then this confident speaker explains uh, that while some trust in the most formidable military technology available to these people at the day, they would remember, they would boast, they would trust in Yahweh, in the Lord, in God. Look at verse 7 with me. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And as a result of the victory they had, there would be be joy, they would be proud, but others would be brought low. Look at verse 8 with me. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So it was only right and fitting and wise to put their trust, not in military technology, not in strategy, but in God. Because those who had placed their trust in all those other things would collapse and fall. Those who put their hope in God would rise and stand upright. The psalm then closes with one final plea. Oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now, of course, we don't live in a monarchy here in these United States, do we? And, you know, historically, we've never really been fond of the idea of a king. So the question is, as a psalm of a prayer for a king, how do these verses speak to us, the people of God here at Missio Church, Syracuse, New York, the year 2020 in the year of our Lord. Well, if we read this psalm or any other psalm or chapter or section of verses in the Bible, uh, for that matter, apart from the storyline of the Bible, apart from the, the idea, the, the running theme of the Bible, and, and simply try to cut and paste them into our current circumstances, we can be left confused, or perhaps uh, more dangerously be misled by cutting and pasting them and dropping them into our present day situation. So the question is, how does Psalm 20 fit into this bigger story of scripture? Well, here we have people looking to a king, to God's anointed, The word here is Mashiach, literally Messiah. Here we have a people looking to their king, to their anointed, to their Messiah for their future, for their situation, for their hopes, for their welfare. They're looking to him. And what we need to recognize is that King David did not usher in the salvation that these people, um, in which these people could ultimately rejoice. He didn't. The the kingdom over which he ruled was torn in two. And then you had Israel and Judah. And then uh, just uh, years later after that, we're talking a couple hundred years of of David's life, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and wiped these kingdoms out. They were gone. So David could not and did not deliver on the high ideal of this psalm. 
David could not and deliver, uh, did not deliver on the salvation that these people were hoping for in praying for their king. That's why they're praying for the king, so that they too might have peace and prosperity and salvation. And David could not and did not deliver on that. What we need to understand is that in the Old Testament, there are uh, three kinds of people. Um, in the first section of the Bible, there's three kinds of people who were anointed with oil in a ceremony that set them apart for a certain job or a certain office. And one of these three uh, were kings. And the pouring of the oil on their head signified that uh, it was God's authority to, authority to carry out their job. To, to, to reside in this office. And Jesus, jumping to the New Testament, is called the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And, and we know that as a mediator between God and humans, he came to authoritatively fulfill the office of king, to set his people free from bondage, to bring ultimate salvation. The New Testament teaching is that Jesus is the true and greater king who liberates us from bondage, bringing salvation. We cannot escape the consequences of sin and death apart from Jesus Christ the King. He is the one who has conquered our enemies. And let's be clear, let's just pause on the word enemies. Our enemies are not those who annoy us. Our enemies are not those who are different from us politically. Our enemies are not those who have a different cultural outlook. Those are not your enemies or my enemies. Hebrews chapter 2 clues us in to what our enemies in fact are. Turn with me if you have your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 says this, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, we have flesh and blood, we're, we're bodies, we're humans with bodies, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh, he, the incarnation. That through death, that through his death, he might destroy. Battle language. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Satan and death, Satan, sin, and death. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. These are our enemies. And King Jesus has taken our enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and he has liberated us from our enemies. He has subdued our foes and saved us from death. So when we see the king in Psalm 20, in this case David, um, prepared to liberate his people from their enemies in some 
minor battle. It's just a sneak peek. It's a, it's a movie trailer, as it were. It's an appetizer for the great liberation that has occurred and will be fully consummated in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Anointed One. See, the people in this psalm stake their hopes, their future, and their celebrations on the fortunes of their king. Now, I get it. In the United States, we have a very individualistic mindset, right? What I do determines my destiny. My choices determine my destiny, right? Right? My choices, my actions, consequences that follow. Captain of my fate. But the scriptures declare quite to the contrary that we are not uh, just individuals all about the world, but we are individuals that are part of one of two groups. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. We have a a representative. We have a covenant head. We have a king. And we are either in Adam, he's our representative, or Christ, he's our representative. Romans 5 says that those in Adam die while those who are in Christ are made alive. Romans 5 says that those in Adam are condemned while those in Christ are justified. Romans 5 says that those in Adam are sinners while those in Christ are righteous. See, you are either, there's no escaping this, you are either united to a failed covenant head Adam, or to the reigning, victorious king, Jesus. And as goes the king, so goes the people. You see, salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And so we need to be united to him. Please hear this, friend. Salvation is not based on how you posture yourself in this life. It's not merited by how much you give to amazing organizations. It's not earned in serving for wonderful community groups. It's not measured by how well you stack up morally against the rest of Americans or the rest of the world. It's not grounded in how much doctrine you understand. Those things are powerless to free us from our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. You see, if we're trusting in those things, we remain dead in our sin. We remain united to Adam, our failed covenant head. As goes the king, so goes the people. But if your hope is in the victorious king, you will live. Here's why. Because Jesus was nailed 
to a cross and executed for his people. He died and was buried, but on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And the resurrection is proof that the Father, in the words of this psalm, remembered the once and for all offering and sacrifice of his son, Jesus. God has vindicated Jesus. He has raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and Satan and death. And so, those united to him, we can shout for joy. Because no longer is it our record that appears before the Father. It's the record of our covenant head, Jesus. That becomes our identity. And so we can gather each week in this place and sing triumphantly because as goes our victorious king, so we go as his people. We need to be united to Jesus. Union with Christ. That's the, that's the central truth of the Christian faith. And that might sound a bit confusing to some of us, so let me try to clarify just a bit. One author uses the illustration of going on a trip. Let's say we want to go to the Cayman Islands. Um, you're at the airport and you're ready to go to the Cayman Islands. That's where we want to go. We have our mindset. What relationship do you need to have to the plane to get to the Cayman Islands? Well, let me give you a few hints. It doesn't help you to be under the plane, to submit yourself to the authority of the plane in flying to the Caymans. Nor would it help you to simply be inspired by the plane, to stand at the gate as the plane departs and then hurdles down the runway and takes off into the air and just think, wow, I'd really like to do that too someday. Nor would it help you to simply follow the plane, to watch the plane head off in a direction and you begin to hoof it to the Cayman Islands. You won't get there. The relationship you need to have the plane is to be in the plane, right? Because if you're in the plane, what happens to the plane happens to you. The plane lands in the Cayman Islands. Guess what? You've just landed in the Cayman Islands. That describes union with Christ. A pastor named Gabe Floor writes, union with Christ means that by faith alone we are united to the resurrected Son of God so that everything that is true of him is true of us. He lands in the Cayman, so do we. Another theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, defines it. He says, to be in Christ means that all he has done for me representatively becomes mine actually. Everything that Christ has done for me as a representative becomes mine actually. So we can sum up the doctrine in two words. Representation and participation. He represents us as our king and we participate with him in the benefits. The benefits he has secured 
for us that we do not deserve, that we could not have earned on our own. But how do we find ourselves in Christ? How can we be united to him? How can we be included in his kingdom? How can we be assured of the salvation which he has secured in battle over Satan, over sin, and over death? The second part of the psalm tells us, look with me again at verse 7 of Psalm 20. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. See, salvation is in Christ alone, and it's secured by faith alone. And, and this is faith. Faith is simply taking God at his word. Believing what he has said about himself believing what he has said about our condition, our sinful condition. We are dead in our sins, his enemies. Believing what he has said about our remedy, that it's in Christ alone. Believing what he has said about our salvation. And because we redeem, we believe that God is trustworthy, because we see Christ's work was and is sufficient for our salvation, We accept, we receive, we rest in Christ alone for our right standing with God. We renounce a salvation based upon our goodness, our works, and we throw our hope in life and in death completely, 100% on Christ. And God accepts God accepts that faith despite our record. God accepts that faith as perfect righteousness because he's united us to his son. He sees the son's righteousness and the son's victory and the son's triumph. We cling to the fact in faith that we are not our own but belong with body and soul both in life and death to our faithful Savior, Christ Jesus. We confess that he has paid fully for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the power of the devil. We proclaim that he also preserves us in such a way that apart from the will of our heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our head. Indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. Friend, what are you trusting in? You can ask yourself no more important question this morning. What are you trusting in? Are you relying on your your ancestry, your family's um, heritage of serving the Lord? Are you relying on your knowledge, your, your grasp of the Bible's teaching? Maybe you're relying on your goodness, your efforts to do good, just to be a a better person in this world. Perhaps some of you are looking to to the government or, or to social programs or cultural change in order to usher in a different and better existence. But friend, all those things in the words of this psalm will collapse and fall. They are doomed to failure 
in terms of rescuing us from our bondage to sin and death, our slavery to sin and futility. We can't put our hope in any of those things. Our hope for salvation must be in Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, alone. So friend, call on him today in faith if you have not yet done that. Renounce all other hopes. Recognize that all the other hopes you've, you've hoped in, they'll collapse and they'll fall, they'll be brought to nothing. As tempting as it might be to find your, your future and your certainty in those things, put your hope in God, in his word, and in his anointed son, Jesus. See, Psalm 20 teaches that our confidence should be in the vindication and salvation of our king. And while he was crucified for our sins, he was raised victorious and ascended to the Father and now sits on his throne. Our our confidence is in the fact that what Jesus has secured, he will share with those who are his. He will give us victory over sin and death because he's defeated both at the cross and at the grave and now reigning. Our confidence is in the fact that all who trust in Jesus will be saved and given the right to rejoice in his salvation. Friend, depend upon Christ. Delight in his salvation. Would you pray with me?